Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is uh, with one of my closest friends and someone that's been on the podcast before. And out of our large group of about 19 close friends back in uh, back home where I grew up in Texas, we're two that uh, he's always been an entrepreneur, just a huge influence on my entrepreneurial career. We talk about that, but also in his uh in his entrepreneurial career, he's well. He's a he's the founder of uh, Fort Capital, which manages nearly seven hundred million dollars worth of real estate property around Texas. He has he started that when he was seventeen years old. Um, he's a podcaster, the Fort Podcast, which I've been on. He has influenced me in my career, influenced me in in starting this podcast, um, and our conversation. He's such a deep, deep thinker. Out of the thousand plus founders that I know, he is um, probably singularly the most interested in continually investing in his mindset. And so when I'm asking him for advice on something, I just know it's going through a filter of 500 different books and pieces of advice and experience all culminating to whatever cream of the of the crop advice comes to the top it's uh and it's no different in this conversation we talk about a whole range of things like the missteps one can make in finding a co-founder we talk about the fact that it's been in vogue for the founder to continually be the ceo you know infinitely for a company in the last 20 years that they start and how that might be wrong in many cases and uh the founder might might be better off handing off the CEO reins. We talk about envy and envy being the worst of all sins because uh, because it's the only one that when you partake in it, it's it's not enjoyable. We talk about this concept that he told me one time and it has danced in my head ever since that if you think it's expensive hiring someone expensive, try hiring someone cheap. And and the implications of that, and what he means by that. And we talk about the value of candor and transparency through an organization he's involved in called YPO that has been one of the more transformative things he's ever he's ever participated in professionally or personally. It's a wide-ranging and just knowledge bomb conversation with one of the more successful real estate developers in the country, especially at his age, that is... Uh, he is on his way to greatness, and uh, I'm I'm I feel lucky to call him a friend. So, without further delay, let's get into it with Chris Powers, the one and only CP3, the one and only CPO. CPO knows. Let's get into it. This is below the line. Chris, give me the ten, ten best pieces of advice you ever got. <laughs> Uh, no, 15, white bread 15. and wheat bread are equally as bad for each other. Not one's better than the other. Uh, damn, Shoot I should have said dough. business, business advice. The top 25 pieces of business advice you've ever received. <laughs> Go. Really? <laughs> no. Um, but uh, I'm so pumped to have you on the, the podcast again. We are um, the best of friends. I love... Love, love. I mean, I tell this to you all the time. I told this when I was on your podcast a few weeks ago. 
uh, that I just love getting a FaceTime from you, a call, a text. It's such good energy uh, when we interact. And I don't, I don't, I don't think that's specific to just us. I think everybody loves you and just, I don't know the frequency that you are always in. It's always super positive um, and, and great energy. I, so I'm, I'm ecstatic to get to talk to you today, but I wanted to actually just start there. Do you even recognize that you have an energy that people love? And for listeners, Chris is phenomenally successful uh, 16 years since he was 17. He's been in the real estate industry uh, and has uh, built one of the best names in, in real estate in Texas or really in the country for for anyone his age. Um, but just on you on the personal front, do you even know that you've got a very infectious uh, magnetic energy? Uh, I think I've become more aware of it as I got older. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm pretty aware that I'm uh, like all systems go a lot of the time. I really enjoy people. Uh, and I think I get a little bit of it from my dad. My dad, I, I don't know how to say it, but he always kind of knew how to, the word's not like poke, but it's like uh, just kind of understand where he was in the conversation or in the room and kind of aware. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy people. I've done a lot of personality testing over the last couple of years. A lot of that's for good reasons. And some of it's like, who the hell am I? Uh, there's just a lot of cool things out there. And which, one, uh, a lot which of that, ones have a you done? I've done Culture Index. I've done uh, Enneagram. I've done uh, Myers-Briggs, uh, probably a few others. And they all tell about the same story. Um, and one of the interesting things is it, it talks about um, when something is interesting to me, I can like light up like really quickly. Um, the downside, and you, you probably don't get to experience this because when we're around each other, like we're interested in pretty much everything we're doing. If I am not interested in something, because when I am interested in something, I'm pretty vibrant. When I'm not, it's hard for me to fake it is basically what, it, what, what happens. Mm -hmm. So I just try and put myself in situations that I really like being in um, and try and avoid ones I don't, which is sounds pretty obvious, I think, to a lot of people. But I don't know. That's just kind of how I've gotten through life. What What's an experience in, within work where you're in the professional side of things where your energy's at a zero, where it doesn't meet that bar? And you're like, shit, this is I got to avoid these oh, situations. Uh, meetings like like scheduled meetings that. I feel like I could do in five minutes and like, you know, I don't want to do them or, you know, I think I think about this a lot. And I, it was one of the things I wrote down. But we live in a world now where it's super hard to say no. I know we've talked a lot about that, but like, dude, everybody's so accessible now through text, email, so and so, so and so text Michael. Hey, can Chris can I get on Chris's calendar? It's always coming at you. And so and Michael, Michael's your wife for. For Michael's my wife. That's, yeah, that's yeah. insane for people to text her to try to get on your calendar. Yeah. Well, and, and people text me and people email our company and, and it's, it's always coming at you. And it's not just me. I think it's a lot of people. Um, and I'm bad sometimes about putting things on my calendar that I like, no, I don't want to do. And I read something on Twitter the other day, but it's like, if you cancel something and like push it out a week, you pretty much just might as well just cancel it altogether. Like you're just kicking the can down the road a lot. Um, 
And so that l- drains my energy as like pointless meetings. And I feel like there's they're like run rampant in today's society. It's just like pointless meetings. They could be a text, a call, whatever. Um, I'm terrible at like f- lots of detail stuff. Like I'm very, I'm, I'm good at seeing the big picture, but people have to get it done. So I'm not good at like multiple hours of focus. Um, I like to have a lot going on. Um, which is good and bad. How did, when I have to like, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, how did twenty-five-year-old Chris get through that where you didn't have a team, and you were, you know, eight years in and you had to do it yourself? I'm really convinced, uh, which is nothing like novel, but I'm really convinced that you can will yourself and like make the world that you want to see around you. And I think a lot of the twenty-five-year-old Chris was like just relentless obsession about making something work. Because when I look back 10 years almost now, since I was 25, and I think of like the quality of work that I was doing, I'm more impressed by how much sheer will and tenacity I had, but not as impressed that I had these, like I was doing any one job particularly well. I was just going to do everything I could. Because now I look around Mm -hmm. the office and see different people in asset management, property management, uh, finance, analyst work, and just watching them do that one job. I'm like, oh my gosh, you are infinitely better at that job than I ever was. Yeah. So I think the 25 year old me was just really good at just like willing stuff to happen. And that can only work. It it can work at your whole career, but um, knowing what I know now, I don't necessarily get really excited about going and starting from scratch something and like willing something from ground zero again. It's so freaking hard. Um, What what do you get excited about? I get excited about working with really smart people and the, the flywheel concept, which is not like novel, but it, I think about it now all the time, which the flywheel is essentially like the more of each thing that you do, the more momentum you gain and you actually don't have to work as hard to have bigger results and not, you know, effing up that flywheel. So, I mean, an easy example would be uh, wake up every day or sleep eight hours a day, better odds that you'll make better decisions that day. You'll eat better. If you eat better, uh, it'll force you to want to work out more. Every time you work out more, it makes your body better, but it also makes you tired to sleep. You sleep better. And like if you do that every single day, like over time, your body is going to be get so much better and you're not going to have to feel like it's working. In business, like if we buy another property, uh, we can hire better people because we have more revenue. If we have better people, we can actually operate our properties better and create better returns, which means we can get more investors. If we get more investors, we can buy more properties. And it's like this virtuous cycle we don't have to like try any harder at any one of those things. They keep reinforcing each other. Mm. So what gets me excited is like finding the flywheel and really letting it go. In podcasting, it's like the more you podcast, maybe the more followers you get. The more followers you get, the more listeners you get. The more listeners you get, the more feedback you get. For me, I a lot of what drives me on the podcast is a lot of the positive feedback I get. The more positive feedback I get, more episodes I get. The more episodes I do, more listeners. And it's just like this virtuous cycle that gets me excited is like finding flywheels and letting them go. That is such a uh, graduation of, of mindset. It seems like from, I think from when, I mean, I don't know, I guess it was 13 years ago. We were in uh, no 11 years ago. We were in 
South Africa. I was working in South Africa. You came and, and visited me just on a whim, just through, I think we were on Gchat or AIM or something. You were like, dude, I'm going to come visit. <laughs> and then you bought a ticket and put the screenshot like 18 minutes later in the chat <laughs> that you had bought the ticket. I feel like Chris back then, you tell me if I'm getting this right or wrong, but loved the beginnings of things. Loved like, oh, and then I could do this and we could do this. And it was starting new flywheels. Um, much more so than, than hearing, than hearing Chris today talk about, uh, sleep and, and eating right and exercise, uh, which is the most fundamental flywheel there is. That's, you know, the flywheel of yourself. It's the machine that builds the machine. So obviously taking good care of it makes sense, but it's so different than the things we would chat about in, uh, early in, in our careers when you really, you took on a lot. Um, but seem to be fascinated by the beginnings of things. Yeah, I think it's a constant struggle because I have ideas all the time. Uh, I think we've talked about this, but like ideas without execution is just like hallucinating. And you realize like you get excited about all these things. But I don't know, once you've built a few things that are really durable and work really well, you realize how hard it is. And not that I don't like hard things, but I also enjoy uh, big results with less effort. Um, that feels interesting to me now, which at the time is maybe more of a framework. It's like, I think success felt like when I came to visit you in South Africa was having lots of plates spinning that felt successful. All these different things, it, busy, you confuse busy for like uh, product productive. My partner, Jason, has like instilled this in me. It's not natural to me, but because I'm reaping the benefits of it as we speak, I think about it all the time is like the more you focus on one thing, the better you get at it. It is very hard to get good at lots of things. It's just very hard. And I've also lost money. I've had failures because just because you're successful at one thing, you know, I used to think, oh, I'd be successful like anything I touched. That's just not true either. Um and that's not a bad thing. Um, so I think a lot of it's just like I've, I've experienced a lot by 35, as you have too, that if I am ever going to go start something from scratch again, it's really going to have to start from a place of like, I am so obsessed with this idea and the outcome of what could happen that I'm willing to like go into it. And I don't have any of those right now. And my ideas right now are more just how do I make the few things that are working well work much better. With that, um, ignorance is bliss, and now just the uh, the known quantity of effort to start something new um, at this point in your career is that would you say the threshold for that obsession is is way higher for you to do something new? Is that um, yeah. and I want and I want to talk about uh, right now in in your career, but yeah, is that sounds like that threshold is is way way higher it's way way higher and i know that um if i were to do something i wouldn't want to do something small like just nat naturally i'd want to do something really big so the idea would have to be unbelievable to the putting it through like Bezos's filter of if i was 80 looking back on my life would i regret having not done this and there's nothing right now on the horizon that i could put through that and be like yeah i would so regret not doing this and the other part that lifts the bar is you know I have two kids now. 
four and two, my four-year-old's really starting to like become a little human being and get into things. And she's going to start having games and this and that. And, uh, it also is a piece of the equation is, uh, everything's an opportunity cost. If I'm going to do something big or something here, there is an impact on my kids, my family life, my ability to, you know, play sports if I want to play golf or whatever it is. And so, um, there's just nothing right now that I'm willing to sacrifice uh, things outside of business to go do something big in business. For for listeners, do you mind giving just a um, a synopsis of your career from I guess it was almost 18 years ago at at 17 getting started in real estate to to now at at 35. Is are you yeah. 35 or 34? 34. I'll turn yeah. 35 in January. Yeah, that's uh, I always um, that's. 34. So young. So young. <laughs> it is. Now the, uh, I, you are always a year younger than, than the rest yeah. of our, our, uh, our peer group. But yeah, do you mind giving a quick synopsis? Yeah. And I, to, to on that 34 topic, I have this eternal feeling that I've never been able to shake that I'm always behind and it makes me go. I don't know how to shake it. It's just kind of who I am. But, um, 17, I went to, I graduated high school year early and I didn't do that because I was a uh, genius in high school. I did that because I got in a lot of trouble in high school and lied to my parents and told them that if they grounded me all summer, I was going to uh, take a bunch of summer school classes and leave early. <laughs> like when I tell people I graduated high school early, it usually comes with, oh my gosh, he probably ACSAT too. No, it was anything but that. Um, I had side hustles in, in high school. I had a couple businesses in high school. Two were legal, one probably not legal. I used to sell fake IDs, but we're here to be transparent. And that's what I did at 17. Thank you for sharing. Um, what were the yep. two legal ones? Uh, the uh, selling golf clubs on eBay, which in 2001, too, was not like everybody was selling stuff on eBay. It was kind of a novel idea at the time. And uh, lawn mowing business. Um, and one of the things that shaped who I am, which we'll get into later, uh, spawned out of the lawn mowing business. So I went to TCU and the way I picked TCU um, was I visited TCU, SMU and UT. They were all pretty good. I had a friend that played golf at TCU. I was not gonna be playing golf at TCU and I barely knew the friend that was actually playing at TCU. And I was like, ah, that sounds good, I'll go to TCU. So I went to TCU and uh, TCU is a private school in Texas, a lot of, um, I don't know, wealthy kids, uh, a lot of, um, I showed up from El Paso and I did feel a little bit out of place. I'll just say that not because people made me feel out of place. Maybe those were my insecurity, my own insecurities, but, uh, showed up and realized really quickly, like to have the college experience that maybe some people were going to have, I, I needed to earn money. And I was not interested in like going and getting, a you know, a $9 minimum wage job. That's just not what I, and I, because I'd run businesses, uh, I say run businesses because I had side hustles really in high school. Um, I needed to figure something out and serendipitously, I met a guy named Adam Blake and he taught me how to buy rental houses my freshman year. And this was Oh four Oh five, uh, started buying rental houses and you know, Oh four to 2008 was one of the best runs in housing ever. Um, ended up starting, uh, bought 12 houses in high school. I mean, college started a property management business, started leasebytcu.com, which even back in 0405, 
people were not going online to find their college rental house yet. They were driving by, calling a sign, and all I did was get landlords to put them on some homepage that I created. Um, and then I graduated in 08. Uh, didn't really plan my career out very well. I thought I would go to Wall Street or go out to San Francisco and work in tech. Or I didn't really think that this was going to be a lifelong career. But I graduated in 08. I had 12 houses. I had a business. And these weren't things that you just kind of say, oh, I, I'm not interested in this anymore. I'm just going to leave. Like I had houses and loans and tenants. And um, looking back, I'm so glad it happened that way. So I ended up staying and um, really just grew the business from there. I mean, I could go through all the evolution of it. But fast forward now. So I graduated in 08. Now we're in 2021. Uh, we have a team of 26 people. Um, we've acquired and developed almost $700 million of real estate to date. Uh, we currently own about $380 million worth of that stuff. Um, we've developed, we've built land, or we've developed land, built houses, student houses, student housing, multifamily. But for the last five years, we've focused specifically on buying vintage industrial buildings around Texas. And back to the conversation we were just having, as soon as we became a singular focused company, uh, we became a much, much better company. Uh, we can recruit more, better. We can raise money quicker and from better people. How so? Um, do, you mind, do you mind walking me through that, uh, why those two are connected? Why what two are connected? The focus, the singular focus, and then um, the efficiencies on recruiting or... Yeah, so... When you want to, uh, when you're first getting started in a company, whether it's real estate or tech or anything, like you're just hoping. Well, let me take a step back. If you're starting a company without this great track record and multiple exits and success, you're kind of starting a business and trying to get anybody you can to join the fight. Um, and as you continue to grow and you look to hire more talent, talent starts asking questions that are a lot deeper, like, they want to see their career play out. They want to know how their career is going to progress. They want to know what they're going to be working on. They want to know um, how quickly things might be able to grow. And when you're telling people like, oh, you might be working on a townhome deal one day and you know, land the next day. And hell, I don't even know where we'll be in two years. Mm. It's hard to get really sophisticated people to leave and bring talent because they don't really know they can't really trust that a year from now they might be doing anything that they signed up for originally. And and with money, we are raising friends and family money. But when you start going to professional investors and they're asking you questions like, how do I know your next deal is going to be an office building or a multifamily project? Like, what's the consistency here? For a little while it worked. We we're like, oh, our our magic bullet is we know Fort Worth really well. So therefore, any type of real estate within Fort Worth, we'll kind of know because we're really experts on Fort Worth. But if you want to grow outside of being a little local uh, investor, which isn't a bad thing, you really need to have like specialties. And so once you can tell people that want to recruit like, hey, we're going to work on industrial. We're trying to buy five million square feet in the next three years. Our goal is to get across Texas. And it's a very methodical people are like, OK, I can buy into that vision. I get it. I understand. And capital when you're raising can go, OK, they're going to become experts in industrial. If I ever want to invest in industrial, that's who I'm going to go to. You don't mm -hmm. want to be the people in the market that nobody truly knows what you do. Um, and. Uh, 
you can call it product market fit, which is what they call it in tech. But once you find it, a lot of people want to join in once the fit's found. And it's hard to find fit when you're just kind of spraying, you know, bullets all over the place, hoping that something's good. It, it has been a very cool evolution to watch from the, the sidelines and especially on the team building side of things. I remember one thing you told me, taught me around team building, and it's a quote that I think about all the time. Um, talk about one of the top 25 pieces of this is advice <laughs> I ever got. Uh, I think you tweeted this out, but uh, it's it's a quote that goes, if you think it's expensive hiring someone expensive, try hiring someone cheap. You mind yep. telling listeners a little more about um, what you mean by that? Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest transformations in my career and really any early founder or first time CEO's career is uh, people are not expenses on the P&L. They are truly assets. And like another quote to kind of go to there is um, somebody once told me, he's like, why would you pay people to show up and piss you off all day? Like when you have a bad employee that you're always complaining about and never does great work, he framed it as like you literally pay you know you realize you're just paying that person to come and like <laughs> piss you off every day and do shitty work. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> uh, and on the uh, but there's nuance to that. Obviously, have they been trained properly? Blah blah blah. But if after the you know the grace period is over, they're not producing, and you see that a lot in small businesses. Um, but to your quote or to the quote of um, every time I've hired somebody that I stretched for or felt like I was stretching for, you know, quote unquote, overpaying to get the results have been 10x what I really could have imagined. Um, on the contrary, every time I've tried to save, you know, 5000 bucks a year in salary and just hire the cheaper person, you kind of get that quality of work. And you know, a great employee not only does great work, but they build others up around them. They motivate people, whether they're intentionally doing that or just through osmosis. And people that don't do great work have the opposite effect on people. And so then you look at like the cost of uh, letting somebody go and having to rehire and retrain and redo all these things. People assume that's like a zero dollar cost. And it's like, I think there is some chart on the internet, but to replace an employee costs 40 something thousand dollars in productivity every time you lose somebody because they're not doing the work. Other people are having to double down. You have to pay for an interview process. You might have to pay a headhunter, all these things. And categorically, it's like 40 to $60,000 in lost productivity and real dollars to replace somebody. And then you just read like the stories of really successful businesses and almost categorically, no matter the industry, the one message that is consistent is to build a great something. You have to have a great team like mm-hmm. the Yankees don't win the World Series with average players. Um, they just don't do that. Uh, LeBron James goes to Cleveland. They're in last place. And two years later, they win a national championship. They build a great team. Um, and I don't and, think and to your to your it. point, a great team member then allows for the recruiting around that team member to where yet he he obviously is a uh the largest piece of that puzzle um in cleveland but at the same time him going there allows him to recruit um amazing all-star players around that would not have been possible that uh would not have taken place if if he weren't there if they weren't like okay there's going to be an all-star and it's the same for a coo it's the same for it seems like it's the same for a CEO. It's the same for a great junior hire. Um, yep. The four people on you know on either side of 
of of that desk on all four sides of that person's desk immediately raise their game. And we've talked about this, whether it's in business or like your friend group or the you're an average of the five people you hang out with. Uh, you can we can make the quote more about culture, but your culture isn't how great your best player is; it's how bad your worst player is. It's what you're willing to accept, and so um, it's why family businesses often struggle a lot. Is because you know some the, the founder's kid shows up at the company, everybody's been working hard, and some you know kid that's not really going to work hard, but he kind of has this red carpet rolled out to him to the top. It starts deteriorating because great people that want to do great work don't want to be in a spot where they're just going to get lapped because somebody was born in the right, you know, uh, you know, born to the the CEO or something. Um, and so what you just said is, you know, great people doing great work breed on itself. Great people want to work with great people. It's a, it's contagious at the same time. Great people don't want to work with not great people. And, um, over time, that's where companies can start decaying. And, uh, so yeah, hiring expensive, quote unquote, expensive people. Um, if you think of them as assets, you always want to buy the best assets you can. They produce the most, they have longevity, uh, they grow and people are that they're just not, um, you know, humans. If, if I went and hired, uh, to start a tech company, I mean, your audience is tech. So I keep going back to tech. Uh, if I went and hired Mark Zuckerberg to be a co-founder, I'm going to build something awesome. I'm going to have to pay him a lot. But we're going to do something great. Like he has a lot of experience and knowledge. Alternatively, if I just go to a TCU and go hire some kid that loves tech but has never done it before, it's going to take us a lot longer to get where we're going if if we ever get there at all. I'm not going to have to pay him a lot, but I'm also not going to get anywhere. Um, and so it's that balance. Well, and and to um, just to underscore that quote again, it's, it it was such a reframing for me uh, to hear something like, if you think it's expensive hiring someone expensive, try hiring someone cheap because hiring someone cheaply has all of these downstream effects um, these these additional costs that 30 grand you're saving in salary uh, for that executive or even that uh, new hire in any role it sounds like someone has has calculated the 40k uh, cost but I imagine it's especially in in startup culture it's way more expensive than that it's, um, yep. you know, it can be the swing of a couple million dollars in productivity and product and the time to product market fit and the insights shared within the company culture. Um, it's a, uh, it's, and it reminds me of, of another quote that is in the same area code that I think a lot about right next to it is, um, that the bigger ambition, the easier it actually is. And that sounds counterintuitive, um, but when founders do shave down the ambition of the idea, um, they're not going for the same many of the same reasons. They're not going to recruit the best, the best people. Um, the best people are looking for a really big, ambitious um, challenge. And yep. when you shave down the ambition, you think that it's you're saving yourself from from a lot of you know heartache and and headwinds because it's not as ambitious and it ends up becoming far harder. Like that small average restaurant that someone is running that's that's listening to this is actually probably probably harder to run than the four person brand new agency that's going to be the best in the world at x in texas or or the the startup that's going to build the best 
you know, best new email client. You know, you can start to recruit for that with massive ambitions of we're going to replace Gmail far better than, hey, we're going to be this cool email client for SDRs and sales organizations. And the amazing engineer is going to hear that and say, okay, maybe that could be cool versus, wow, build something better than Gmail. And the ease or difficulty of, of a, of a new endeavor, I think comes down to the, the capabilities of the team around you. Um, I mean, it's somewhat obvious, but, um, the ease or difficult comes down to the capability of the team. Just like if the canonical example is running a marathon, if you have a bunch of people around you that, um, that are crawling, then running a marathon is, you know, a hundred times harder than it already was going to be in starting a business. But I, I think about that, that quote all the time. What are some of the, what are some of the pieces of advice that you think about all the time? I know I was joking before, but I actually, I actually, uh, am curious of the, the pithy quotes that bounce around in, in your head the most. Cause I, I really think about that, that quote probably weekly from you. I, you know, one, one quote just to finish that kind of loop. And it's, it's, Look, it's much easier to do in really ambitious settings where you have lots of recruiting capabilities and, and great people are showing up. But uh, I can't remember who said it. It's some. It's one tech founder, but he just said, um, "When you're recruiting someone, ask yourself the question: Would I work for this person?" Mm-hmm. You know, everybody. A lot of people recruit thinking like, "Okay, this person's going to be right under me, and like I can't let them be better than me, or else that's on me." And you, if if you if you hire that way, you're hiring downward rather than upward and asking that question, like, would I ever see myself working for that person? And it doesn't have to mean that they're more skilled than you already, although that would be great, is like, who's their demeanor? Are they ambitious? Like, would I follow this person off a cliff? And um, again, not every hire can be there, but it's it's certainly a, a, a way to elevate your recruiting is to, to frame it that way. Would I see myself working for this person one day? Definitely. Things I think about or quotes, I think I go back to this thing on focus. It has not been my natural instinct. My natural instinct has always been to have lots of plates spinning and investments in this and doing this. And you get these really chaotic calendars. You, 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 you have these weeks where you've worked 80 hours for the week. And like at the end of the week, you don't feel like you moved any one ball forward. You were just kind of like fending things off all week. Um, uh, and I, I start telling people this all the time is I think, uh, Harry Stebbings, I think is his name, set, uh, posted something on Twitter the other day, he said, uh, narrow the focus, increase the quality. And it's like a thousand percent true. It is. And some people go, well, how does Elon Musk run like five companies? And he's not running any one of those companies. What he's focusing on is being this incredible leader that people will follow off a cliff. That is his main focus. Now he's the CEO of five companies, but he's not dropping in and out of each one every day and retooling his brain for this scenario. He's working at a higher level. So focus. And and um, actually in that framing that you just gave, you could almost make a, a case that he's a better recruiter at Tesla because he's seen as this world-class leader that can lead five companies at a time. Yep. And therefore his recruiting at SpaceX. Obviously the aeronautical engineer is not is not going over and dabbling in Neuralink or, or, um, or maybe Tesla, but it's probably not actually at all. Yeah. Aeronautical, not, um, and yet 
that aeronautical engineer at uh, that's interviewing at SpaceX is probably there because okay, this is a freak next level type of founder that I'm that I would be joining at this company, rather than it being a diffusion of his leadership. If yep. that if his goal is to, and he probably has achieved it of being seen as the singular best leader in the world, um, in the innovative, um, you know, business sense. Yep. Then it does, it does rise. That tide lifts all ships. Probably something that I was aware of, but I wasn't as aware of as I am today. And I give again, a lot of credit to my partner, Jason. Um, I used to just think that all recruiting, like when you were, uh, like what to value in somebody, uh, was just like great work, uh, unbelievably impressive, um, you know, on paper looks amazing. And I think there's a quality about uh, people, especially within a company setting. And you see this at like like Tesla, where, where it's almost like a cult. The people at Tesla are it's like cultish. But the amount of priority I now put on the people that love our company and just love like the business. I think that's such an underrated thing um, because what you often find in these like super driven is a lot of the like me, 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 um, they're not going to be there forever. So while they're doing great work in the moment, like you're always worried that they're going to go on to the next thing or, you know, you're, and what I found over time is like some of the best people we've had, not they're doing great work, don't get me wrong, but but one of the things that sets them apart and it makes the team want to engage with them more and, and push them further is they truly love the team and the company. And that is so underrated. Um, you see often like hiring these awesome people that don't give a shit about the company. Like they're there to like do something, make money, whatever, but they are on to the next thing as soon as you let them. And I don't think we give enough credit to the people on the team that are like die hard. Like I wouldn't go in. This is my ride or die. That is such a valuable quality. It's really hard to get people to love you and believe in you for long periods of time. And when you find those people like latch on to them because it's a it's it's more rare than you think. The average tenure of a developer in the Bay Area is 14 months. Yeah. And. You know, if you are coming in, especially in a in a leadership role or a senior role with the ambitions of of you know a leadership, a more you know senior role, that is in I mean it takes two years to learn a new organization to be really competent in your role of not only executing but also leading other people around you. It takes two years. And leaving after 14 months, when I heard that quote or that stat of the average tenure of a, of a developer in the Bay Area is 14 months, then I just immediately thought, well, the job search is five to six months of, uh, of looking and finding the right, maybe it's four months if you're, if you are uh, really antsy and looking for another job. That means that by month nine and 10, you're already looking for the next job. So you are mentally checked out already. Nine to 10 months in, that is so costly. Talk about the dark matter, implicit costs of a business or or building a team. That seems just it almost breaks my brain to think through an engineering team of of eight people and not having exactly what you're saying. Looking for the people that that are so uh, aligned with the mission and the company for the long term 
those people, yeah, you bear hug them like crazy. Well, and it's hard to, you know, I get leaving in 14 months that the company's doing shitty and you just want to go be on a more ambitious team. But if you, if you think of anything in life, whether it's a business person that's been really successful or a business, like everything takes time to compound and do well. And if you're bouncing around every 12 months everywhere, like you're just kind of starting over what feels like this, I'm getting ahead is, is actually not really happening. And it's what we just said. The compounding of being on a team for a long time is like this under this, this web of trust that, you know, everybody in the office, you can walk in their office and they'll go to bat for you like that. Uh, you know, the little nuances and intricacies of the business that nobody knows. The team knows like he's here. Like I can count on him a year from now, two years from now. There's so many intangibles to staying course. And I'm speaking to myself on a lot of this. And I've seen young people leave our business because they thought they were they, they were money grabbing at the next job. And the guy that stayed and just kind of kept you know, chopping wood is in a much better situation right now than the person that keeps bouncing around for a, a higher paycheck. Um, because there's all these other things than just like a better title or more money that, that progress your career. And you got to learn to work with people. And it's hard to really learn to work with people when you're only getting to know them for 12 months at a time. And oh, by the way, people aren't dumb. Like they can spot the person that's only going to be there 14 more months. Like, yeah, you it's got very obvious. Right. You have three bites of that apple before anyone looks at the resume and, or the LinkedIn yeah. profiles like, yeah, this isn't exactly who we want to build a team around. Scar girl does. Um, and, and by the way, one of the things that I admire most about you is how obsessive you are in in getting better and thinking about um, the principles and philosophies within business and life to improve. It is, um, you know, you'd think that's the case for every founder, but the level in which you invest in it, um, invest in yourself, reading, going to uh, seminars, um, sharing different viewpoints with us as friends that are also entrepreneurs and, and founders, the level in which you sink your teeth into that stuff after investing in 85 companies and and going through programs like Y Combinator and seeing just the, the entire gamut of, there's, I think there's maybe 150 other founders in our, in our batch. We're all close, 10 years in Silicon Valley. I don't think I've met a single founder that, that dives into this stuff, um, self-improvement, self-mastery as much as, as you do. So for listeners, when I'm asking for these uh, admittedly maybe pithy um, pieces of advice, from that bounce around in your head. I'm not just asking from, from anyone. I'm asking from a living, breathing, walking library of, of all of the advice out there. And what are the ones that really rise to the top? So a little bit of extra color for people when I ask that question, but what are some of them, some more of those things that bounce around in your head the most? I've started to make what I would consider, uh, and I say this humbly, but it's just like real money, quote unquote. And I'll tell you, I'm no happier. (laughs) Yes, get that real money, player. (laughs) I'm no happier making that much more. um, The things that I sacrificed along the way, there was a period where I didn't hang out with my friends as much. I was really closed off. I just like thought my worth was in the office and almost thought it would be like uncool to be hanging out with friends at a time when like I should be like grinding like all the time. And we hear that all the time. And there's a time to work real quick. Tell me, do you have a laser printer? 
A what? A laser printer? You got that laser printer money? I bet you you got that laser printer money. Um, And when I say real money, when I say real money, I I, and I know and I kind of know behind the veil what you mean by real money. You've done you have done really well. And it's and it's been this compounding investment that is now starting to, uh, you know, the money is starting starting to to pay off. Flow the other direction. And the thing that I'm more leaning into as I get older is not like try. I want to make more money. I want to do be more successful. But uh, the things and there's a guy that really opened my life to this because I think there's just a lot of it's very easy to get off track is uh, I enjoy hanging out with my friends more today than I probably did five years ago. Um, I I was the guy that when I started having kids would tell like my business partner, like, don't worry, dude, like I'm still going to be at the office all the time. Like I'm, I'm always going to be here. My kid, I'll play with my kids late. Like that's totally changed. Um and you just get to a point where like every extra hour of work, you're probably actually doing more harm than more good. And I'm just telling you five years ago, I would never would have bought into that. That was just not interesting to me. Yeah. And tell it me. seemed counterintuitive. Tell, tell me more about that. That sounds, uh, I'm, I imagine listeners would hear that and, and say, how is that possible? More time. So being a, more a, a lot of it is because, okay. Um, if you're just starting something, like from scratch, working 80 hours a week is actually probably not a bad thing. If you're if your competition's working 40 and you're working 80, uh, you're you're kind of moving the ball forward. And there's lots of tasks and like shit to do, and it's like literal things like sending lots of emails and making lots of sales calls. But as you progress throughout your career, and this doesn't matter which industry you're in, you become more of a decision maker than a uh, task doer. And decisions take time. Like you can't be distracted all the time if you want to make a good decision. Like Jeff Bezos, and I know we're throwing out these cliche names, but I think they're they've been really successful for lots of reasons. And he always says, like, I try and make three great decisions a day. Well, if you were just to watch somebody make those decisions, like it doesn't require eighty minutes, eighty hours of work and calling all making all these sales calls and email, like that's for earlier in the game. And then as you kind of progress you're making thoughtful decisions. You're making decisions that you actually might not know if you were right for years to come. Um, and that doesn't take 80 hours a week. In fact, I would just say if you're doing lots of things to try and make great decisions, um, you probably you probably don't know what you're really trying to make a decision on, I guess. I, I don't know how to say it. It's like by the time you're in decision-making mode and have all these years of experience, you shouldn't need to be working as hard to make quality decisions. Like the reason why you're at where you're at is because you've proven that like you're a good decision maker along the way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would have five years ago been, been the mindset? How would it be more harmful to, to be in the me, office? It even was, more? it was not understanding that that was starting to become my place but then like a day where I didn't have my calendar filled up just seemed like, like this is, I'm having an off day. Like I've, I've got to have all these meetings and, and what really happens with founders and it's something I'd written down was, I don't think enough is talked about of how much the founder should not be the CEO in a lot of circumstances and how positive of a thing it is when the founder's willing to go, Hey, I'm not going to be the CEO and that's cool. It's, it's, it needs to be talked about more. 
But what I would used to do, and I think what a lot of founders do because it's their baby and it's their company is if they don't have anything to do because they're ambitious and because they're, they're smart and because they sometimes don't know what they should be doing, they go like set a meeting or like bust into somebody's meeting or I, I, I liken it to they go break something just so they can fix it because they need a win. Founders like wins. And some days making decisions don't feel like wins, especially when the outcome isn't going to happen for a long, long time. And so what you see them doing is they have all these people reporting to them for way too long. They sit in meetings. They critique everything of how they would do it. And it feels good. It's You're busy, blah, blah, blah. But again, you get to the end of these weeks and you're like, I don't know if I like hurt, like screwed things up more or made things better. And... I recognized really uh, through a lot of great advice that that's what I was doing more and I wasn't fulfilled by it. Um, so I kept like trying harder, like maybe I just need to be in more meetings or like I need to have better, more team meetings, more. And the reality of it is the more I started to get out of the way, it was uncomfortable at first, but the business is in better shape today than it's ever been. I'm actually not the CEO anymore. I, I After 16 years, I moved it 90 days ago. Uh, been operating in this capacity for a year, but the business is moving better than I could have ever dreamed. And I am not involved in almost anything day to day anymore. Mm. And I think it takes all people a lot of time. And it's not a bad thing, but you just think, okay, I did all this, or I was part of all this. It's not like people have a, an ego in a bad way, but you just believe that like, no, like I'm still so needed. And I think we need to celebrate more like, no, you're not. You did mm -hmm. your job. You've hired an amazing team. They're flourishing. They're growing. Support them. Be their cheerleader. And to a lot of founders, that doesn't sound like the most exciting thing in the world. They like the early days of waking up at 5 a.m. and seeing the Slack messages going bananas and the sales coming in. And it just changes over time. And, and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, all these people that are front and center to the world, they're so unique in their ability to kind of transform what was, you know, at five employees to being the CEO of a 500,000 person company. Like having the skill to do that is so rare. And I'm not saying people shouldn't want that, but if you're not that, you're not like, you're not a bad CEO or a founder. That's so rare. Um, yeah. I think we should celebrate more of the people that want to move out of the way and let people run run. Yeah. 15 years ago, that was more of the playbook. Um, and it was, that's why it was so anomalous. If, if someone like Mark Zuckerberg, I know with, with Zuckerberg and Facebook, they hired on executives knowing and him thinking, okay, I'm going to hand the reins over as the company gets larger. And then, um, a year or two into, into that process and working with the, the executives. And I know one of the executives that was hired for that, um, he changed his mind and it led to uh, breakup between him and that executive, but he changed his mind and, and he decided he wanted to run the company. And, and that became, um, a strength for them in that moment, in that, that window of time. And for him being such a unique individual could do that. But I love this that we have overcorrected to the, the, it's like, there is no playbook anymore. Um, there's only one direction. There's no playbook for certain types of companies. It's just you're a failure if you can't scale with a company as CEO. And that's, yeah, I mean, that, like in my next company with Magic Mind, I already am like, I don't, I don't give a shit about those three letters. 
whatsoever. In fact, think about those three letters. If you've letters. been CEO, like you get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I would rather not fly the plane 24 hours a day with all of the knobs and all of the controls. Um, as much of that uh, agency it gives you, I'd much rather be the person in first class. Although that you know, if you are a founder, you're never really just chilling in first class. Um, but there is some middle ground between there where you don't have to be at all of the dials, all of the controls. This episode is brought to you by a little sipper called Magic Mind. Ever wake up in the morning wondering, what am I doing with my life? Well, what you probably aren't doing is sipping on them Magic Minds. Magic Mind is a two ounce shot, matcha, nootropics, adaptogens, functional mushrooms, everything in a morning ritual drink that you've ever wanted. You take it alongside your morning coffee or tea, you get seven hours of creative, productive flow. It has 12 magical ingredients that all combine for everything you'd want in a shot. Energy, cognition, de-stressing, immunity support, everything in this two ounce beautiful shot that tastes delicioso. So go check it out, magicmind.co, enter promo code BTL, that's BTL for below the line for 20% off, magicmind.co. Go check it out and get them sippers. Have you always known that or had that intuitive sense that this, the founder doesn't need to be the CEO? Or is that something that shifted over time? Um, so I, and this is again, like cliche, but I really, I've read a ton on Warren and Charlie over the years, like a lot. I've listened to every, and I, and I, I've always been fascinated by how one of the largest companies in the world is run by a guy that it's not fully true, but it's eats peanut brittle and like sits on his ass up in Omaha every day and like has the biggest businesses in the world that he owns. And then I actually started following um, Andrew Wilkinson, who's a mutual friend of ours. I know you know him really well and really started studying the way he had kind of designed things and really started looking at more of this decentralized thing. And a lot of the folks that have um, that were successful in kind of a more decentralized life uh, were founders at one point and burnt out. And I started just having feelings at Fort where I love I, to this day, it's my, besides my, my family and uh, my faith, it's like my first love. Um, I love my business. I love the people up there, but I wasn't happy day to day and I couldn't figure out why all these years I was so loved it. And I loved being there every day. And then my role just started changing um, and it wasn't me. And so I think a lot of people go through this identity crisis where they're trying, they like lean more into it and like, Oh, it's me. Like, I just, like, I keep going back to like, I gotta be in more meetings or like, we gotta, uh, we gotta start doing something new. Your natural instinct is like a new idea that'll make things better. Or here's something that's on fire and I need to show that I'm going to be the one to run in the house and yep. take all five family members out and be the hero that saves the day. Yeah. I started losing patience and, um, and Jason, again, I go back to my partner. He had worked at a big company and he, he would he would frame things and really being in there's two things that were probably more impactful. But one was this organization called YPO. So I've just got to sat, I've got to sit and meet lots of great people in business and learn from them. Um, it's young professionals organization organization. Yep. 
but I just like there was a lot of people telling me like, dude, you can still get a lot done without working all the time. And like I would go through my calendar with people and we would talk about everything I did that week. And by the end of the week, I would I would reflect and be like 80 percent of that was like my ego or like me just doing shit just to do shit or fear, fear. And I was only 20% of my week I would recognize as like really quality time. And even within that 20%, it was like, yeah, I don't really need to do more of that. Like if I just did that, uh, the business would still run really well. And that's where you start having the idea of like, okay, well, what am I going to do with the other 80% of my time? Um, because the answer isn't like expand that 20% that's working into, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, you, again, I keep going back to these big names, but we like forget we talked about Elon and like Jeff and but Jeff had a rocket ship company. He bought the Washington Post. He has all these phil philanthropic deals. He isn't showing up to Amazon 80 hours a week as the CEO. I wouldn't I would bet he's there. He probably puts 15 to 20 hours a week into it. It's the largest company in the world now or one of them. Which is and impossible I think, for I would imagine impossible for many leaders to or for many listeners to believe. Um, yeah. But it's it how how just articulate how a leader would be able to run the largest company in the world with uh, 20 hours a week. I truly believe and I'm going to I hope I say this the right way is like the greatest companies in the world become great because the founder and owner or the, the original person gets out of the way and spends less time because they always say it's lonely at the top. But that there's a lot of meaning to that. And I think and, and some of it's personality. But the truth is, my team doesn't want me popping into meetings unannounced. And they don't want me correcting what they're again. Great people don't want to be feel like it's like, hey, be great until I need my time to shine. And then they don't want that. They want a lane to run in. And founders, they don't know they have this ego a lot of time, but they feel like all this is happening because of me and I just need to be in the way and I need to sign off on every decision. And okay, what great person wants to go work for a company that they get to make 99% of the decision, but you get the final like say. God. Yeah. That would it be, just, that would kill this. And I actually had the, the great fortune of when we sold our company and then I was at Airbnb for two years, being a, an employee was so, uh, this is the first time, first and only time I've been an employee anywhere. And it was a, such an eye-opening experience of what exactly what you're talking about, that side of the equation, that um, need for control from the boss and that need for things to go a certain way that's, you know, preformed in, in a CEO's head or a founder's head of how you see it, your vision, and it needs to be executed within that uh, vision in your head, how... Um, how much it just chops the agency out of the people around you, out of the team members, how it just kills the spirit. It's like you work on something for seven weeks and then you have your own vision for it and then it gets changed. It's like, yeah, you know, your dream house. And then someone's like, actually, no, let's, let's uh, take two bedrooms out and let's add a basketball court in the backyard. And you're like, wait, this isn't my, and they're like, okay, now go build it. Yep. And you do that three times during the construction of that house or that project for the the team member. And they're like, fuck this. I just don't even care anymore. I'll, you know, I'll ship a result. 
but it ain't going to be something that I'm not much, you know, that vested in. Yeah. It's, it goes back to like, if you're cutting people at the legs or you're changing paths every six weeks or what, like, it's hard to get any momentum going. You're just kind of starting and stopping and, uh, founders are emotional. It's their baby. So they actually make decisions. Unlike most people in the company, one emotional, um, there, there, there's a lot of, uh, reasons they make decisions. And the truth is nobody, and I don't mean this negatively because there are people that put their blood, sweat and tears, but nobody will ever understand how much ownership a founder takes of his decisions. And at the same time, a founder will never understand why everybody in the company isn't as enthusiastic as they are. Maybe they're close, but at the end of the day, like it's not there and it shouldn't be like People want to show up and do great work, but a lot of people that do great work also don't want to make it their identity. They want to be able to go home and see their family or they want to have hobbies. They want to do stuff. And when you have this founder that's like, no, I'm going to work 20 hours a day. I'm going to control every decision. Nothing's getting past me. It's like it wears people out and it's counterintuitive. It doesn't it might work early, 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 early on. But if you don't get out of the way pretty quick, like that's why small businesses don't stay small on purpose. They're typically led by people that are not letting the business grow. Talk to me about your that uh, shift in mindset of the founder doesn't need to be the CEO. And then this decision process to where you find yourself now 90 days into um, not being the, the CEO of something that was such a big part of your identity for over a decade. So on one end, I go, I the best thing I can do for that company if I always think of it as my company, then maybe I wouldn't move. But if I look at it through the lens of how do I give everybody in this office the best chance to succeed and me feeling like me moving over to the side is going to do that, then it actually makes me feel really good. Um, you know, we in our business, we buy real estate. Uh, we'll buy, I don't know, 12 to 15 uh, deals this year. So buildings. And when I talk to people outside, they're like, oh, you're the chairman of the investment committee, right? And I'm like, yeah, I've got that title. I actually haven't sat in an investment committee all year, though. And we've done six deals. They're like, what? Like, how are you getting these deals done if you're not an investment committee? And I'm like, what do you think? I'm some oracle? Like, have some like, okay, here, let me take you through my process. And this goes back to decisions. The decision that I've made is we need to buy industrial in Texas, and I have a laundry list of reasons why. My job is to fact check that every day. Is that still a good decision? But any one building that we're going to buy on this corner or that corner or this, I guess, yeah, I have something to bring to the table, but really it's more asking questions in the room to spur good conversation. But if I have to be the expert out of six people in the room of if we should do it or not, I have a, I have not hired the right team. Like, so there's two reasons why I would need the final vote ego. And again, when I keep saying ego, I don't think of people maliciously having an ego. They just think like, Hey, I'm the founder. I'm the chairman. Like it all rides on me. That puts unwanted pressure on them. And the truth is there a lot of found it's like imposter syndrome. Because let's think about it. The other five people in the room are the ones talking to the brokers every day. They're the ones driving them in the market. They're the ones underwriting the deals. They are the ones collaborating, you know, day in and day out. Why, after doing all that work, should I think that when they come in now, I'm not saying I don't have some wisdom and haven't seen some things, but ultimately, if the whole team thinks we should do something, 
or not do something and I think we should or vice versa, there, there's something going on. There's a much bigger issue there than like I'm just some really smart guy with some intuition. Um, so a long way of saying what you're saying is I used to have to know deal by deal because when we were smaller, that was it. But now I tell people like, why do I need to sit in an investment committee? I need to just make sure that that buying industrial in Texas is still a great thing. And as soon as I feel like it's not, communicate that effectively and hopefully have a reason why it's not and what we should do next. But again, that's going to take that's that's not going to happen tomorrow. It ain't going to happen next week. Like that could take a couple years. So if you see me in my office just sitting there reading, it looks like I'm doing nothing, but I'm just staying sharp on is this the best use of our time? And any one deal we do over the next few years, maybe I have some insight or wisdom here and there, which I'm always going to share. But ultimately, I think people from the outside world looking in think that I just like sit in investment committee and like bless it like I'm God. Like, yes, this is the deal that we're going to do or no. And it's like, no, we have five amazing people that I've hired. They're way smarter than I am. I could hear a listener thinking, well, that works for real estate, but does that translate to a tech business? Does that translate to running a restaurant? Do you think it translates to other industries? I think it does. I mean, I think, and I think we could speak to this, but a really great idea with quote unquote pro- product market fit or tailwinds at its back is going to have a lot of momentum. You don't have to keep like going at it once it's kind of working. And, um, I think founders that are are trying uh, to disturb that either don't have product market fit, they're bored, so like their natural instinct is to just go start something new within the business. Uh, I think it's a little different in tech in that there's so much pressure to grow and grow quick and grow big that it's like it's really hard. But if you really look back at like the companies that have done the greatest over the last 15 years, they had a great product like really early on and the momentum of like the market, I'm not saying it made it, by no means made it easy, but it was a much maybe smoother journey forward. Um, You know, who would have thought like, we can talk about Airbnb, that took off like a rocket ship because like early on people like, yeah, I actually don't mind staying in somebody's house. That had momentum. Now, they didn't have to grind for years and years to find that first thing. And then I would say the ability to grow and recruit and do the right things, they had a big tailwind at their back. Do you think the, yeah, the restaurant owner, the barbecue restaurant owner in Fort Worth can get to that point where they are just reading a lot of the day? Do you think they can get there or is it something to where if it is? No, a what restaurant res- owners do that are great is, and I know Travis Heim here, uh, or I could pick a number of great restaurateurs. What you usually find from them is barbecues working, get a good GM and staff recipes are in place. They go start a new concept. Um, you see all these great restaurateurs that have lots of concepts. Um, that's more the entrepreneur in them, uh, than the fact they couldn't just, you know, sit on their ass and let people cook barbecue and they just, you know, make money at the end of the year. So in many ways they do, they do that where they do exit from that concept for, you know, save for five to 10 hours a week as they work on the next uh, concept. And that's one of the things that uh, a restaurant uh, restaurant owner on the podcast had said previously was uh, one of the biggest lessons he learned was do not fuck with momentum of a team. 
and yep. that um, once a team is working well together, that it is, uh, it's like um, the basis of a pyramid. You you think you're just like, man, but this line cook is kind of a pain in the ass, or uh, this person is it's three years in, but man, they just really are uh, not executing an XYZ role. And he didn't necessarily say from the GM perspective, but from the momentum of uh, kind of the front line of a restaurant, he was like, do not. He's he's tried it and it's always just blown up in his face because that one person that wasn't working in the way he wanted had amazing whatever energy and, and uh, rhythm within the team uh, to their left and right. And he didn't foresee how much it would affect that if he gets rid of someone. And, and in many ways, I, I guess that does tie to don't mess with the momentum. If your business has momentum, it's probably why a, a restaurant tour that's great at starting their first concept is better at going and starting their next concept um, in that zero to one phase than, than just continually reiterating and potentially messing with the momentum of the team. Do you feel like you are potentially getting in that territory where you are going to go back to starting another another concept and you're kind of just waiting to finish up on that one thing you just said it was momentum is fun don't get me wrong it's fun to be doing great things and be winning but momentum is also boring because things are working like you don't need all these new ideas you just need to like let it go so there's this constant balance of it's awesome to win and see things happening but you, what you find with like great momentum and a team that's moving is it's kind of it gets boring it's like the same mm. stuff um mm-hmm. the goal is every day to not be like fireworks it's just like Let's just keep cranking little by little. And um, so momentum's fun, but it can be really boring, and that's okay. Uh, your question, starting something new. Um, yeah, I'm in a weird uh, – so I have the podcast. Fantastic podcast. Uh, Fort. I appreciate it. Same thing. I love doing it. Um, my natural instinct is to want to go find something new to work on. But I'm trying to get really comfortable for the next two years to keep being like the biggest cheerleader I can for Fort, growing the podcast. I've hired an assistant that starts in a week that's just going to, it only works for me and will take care of some venture stuff and everything I have going on in my life out. And I'm just going to kind of play out the next kind of 12 to 18 months and just kind of like teeter. And if something crazy comes up, great. If it's not, I'm pretty comfortable with like nothing happening right now. And I think I'll get inspired by not feeling like I have to force something because there is nothing right now that I'm like jumping out of my shoes to go do uh, that's worth giving more time to right now. Now, that could change tomorrow. Hell, it could change in an hour. I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't want to force anything. It sounds so natural to you right now, but has has that getting to that strange that comfort with that ambiguity, has that been easy or is that? Uh... No, it's hard. It's everything kind of against the grain of, of what, like we could be, we could go have lunch after this and you could tell me some idea and I would have like a three hour high of like, fuck yeah, like let's go do this. And then I'll <laughs> which wake we up have, next... Which we have gotten we do. very close to the, the, those things. I like, do it. I, like I, Avenger I, Fund I, together, right? I hallucinate like five times a week and I think that's that's good. Andrew Wilkinson and somebody else said something, though, the other day that kind of uh, was really true. And he was like, if I really want to get an idea started, he's like, I buy a domain name for it. I give it a name. 
and I like do one thing that moves the ball forward. And it kind of like puts you in like, okay, now I'm committed. And most ideas, if you don't do some action item in the first 24 hours, they kind of fizzle out. And I think people like to think of these ideas as like, they take months to develop. And then there's like all this work to be done. And what you usually find when something starts, it's like when I started the podcast, I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. The first thing I ordered was I downloaded an app on my phone. It was the worst podcast ever. Then I emailed Johnny and it just kind of happened. Had I not just like gone, I would have thought about it. It would have been a great idea. But if you look at most ideas in the world, Going back to Airbnb, they were like broke and needed to like rent out a bedroom and they rented it out and it just started. They didn't stop and then think about it for six months and strategize. They just like did it again. Well, for, listen, t- for, for listeners, I do want to add a little extra color. They did start, but they did stutter start three different launches before it really started to take off. But I it guess was my point, though, is but, they, but they, they got going. started. Yep, yeah, they, they got started literally within like six hours of having the idea they had someone through a Craigslist ad uh, wanting to rent one of their, one of their, uh, and for any listener that's like wanting to start something and it's cliche um, answer is like, unless you're going to, and maybe it even works if you want to go put a rocket on Mars, but just doing like one little thing, like getting a domain name and telling a friend about it and saying, Hey, I'm going to do this, like putting some accountability on yourself and maybe, If you're going to start a newsletter, like send the first newsletter. I mean, just doing like one little thing actually starts the ball rolling. I think people intimidate themselves to get started. Like a thousand things have to be lined out and ready to go. And the answer is like that's virtually almost always not the case. It's like this little step forward or, you know, I made this one T-shirt and I sold it and it worked. So I bought two and I sold two. And next thing I knew I had a big clothing brand or the, the starting like first 24 hours is usually this very insignificant, tiny little thing that um, you don't even really maybe even realize you're starting something. I, I want to ask um, more about this this new phase, but real quick to round out that transition from that CEO founder role to um, founder, but no longer with those three letters and in that maybe the appreciation for the fact that it is the company, not your company that should be looked out for. Were there, some people learn things while they are at 30,000 feet and flying high and they're like, wait, I can make a different decision. Some people, I learn things crash to the ground and it's like, okay, that was a very low, low and I need to reorient things. Um, were there milestones along the way? Were there events that caused you to, to shift in perspective of whether you should be running the company or walk me through just that psychology that probably, I mean, it's gotta be one of the bigger decisions a founder CEO can make. Um, maybe even harder than starting the company. Cause it, you, you talked about how you almost fell into it. Whereas this is a very thoughtful, huge implications for the rest of the team type of conversation uh, or internal uh, conversation to have. I think the series of events were, um, Again, and I want, and I want the below the line version. Of- yeah, no, a series of events. And, I, and I'm like just kind of word vomiting here. Um, one, we're just reading a lot about other folks and seeing what worked and what wasn't working. Um, 
a lot of my own feelings, just like what I was happy doing and not happy doing. And I, I've, I think we've talked about this and I mean this in a positive way because I still loved being at the office and with the people, but I was not leaving fulfilled. Like I started just being coming very unfulfilled. Uh, there was a series of probably decisions that I made around people and just stuff that was it, when I would reflect on it was like that was a poor decision driven by emotion, not or me being bored than anything. Um, and I don't know, I got really comfortable really quick going like the goal isn't to be in control forever and have the CEO title like that is not the goal. Um, and I started a podcast, which I love doing. And people would ask me like, what do you love doing every day? And I was like, I love doing my podcast. They're like, do you still love Ford? I'm like, yeah, I love Ford too, but I, I love doing the podcast. I love having time to go meet people and work on other things. And I used to feel guilty about that. That was like a guilt thing. It's like, no, I need to put all my attention into Fort. And I think because I'm in, like I'm energized like most founders are, like I think my people respect me and love me and I love them. But I think you can intimidate like it becomes intimidating after a while. I started realizing like I, I didn't need to be in meetings anymore. And really reflecting, going, the best thing I could possibly do and the mission became, how do I replace myself? Like, I, f I don't know when I decided that, but I was like, I want to replace myself. How am I going to do that? A lot of people are like, well, shit, you got to sell the company. Well, the, the transition to 18 months, it, the transition took 18 months of behind the scenes work with my partner, Jason, to make the transition. Um and we got a coach and we talked to lots of people and we learned about how we should incentivize and structure people. We built a leadership team, like we did all these things. And all along, I just kept saying, okay, am, is there, am I better at anybody than any one thing? And as soon as the answer was no, it was like, okay, it's time. Um, my being a leader and encouraging and cheerleading people doesn't take like 40 hours a week. I mean, one handwritten note to an employee catching them doing something right could move the ball more than me doing spreadsheets and, mm -hmm. you know, doing all these meetings. And that isn't what you read about in business school. Let's just put it that way. Uh, that doesn't feel like business. Um, Why is it? Why is the narrative so different than the reality 16 years? And I imagine for 10 of those years that you're building the business, you also thought, okay, the narrative matches up to the reality versus where you are now, where exactly what you just said, I think is just so, so underappreciated and true of the handwritten note to the employee doing something the right way or great and you know, doing something great is more powerful than you reviewing a spreadsheet. Yeah. I think Naval said something about it, but like we call it business, but all businesses is people interacting it's not like we think of it as this whole ulterior thing, but at the core of it, it's just people getting along, trusting each other, pushing each other, uh, motivating each other, um, reprimanding each other and like giving each other. But it's just people colliding. And when you read business, you're like, no, it's like accounting and finance and marketing. And it all it is all those things. But one step deeper is just people doing stuff. Um Hmm. within you and you read like the media loves to glorify these like huge companies with founders that work like they're, they're, they're literally are modern day superheroes. 
and uh, you know, you and I know enough of them now to go like, they don't feel that way. Maybe they do a little bit, but we, we, we know deep, deep, deep down inside, they still wish they could be that person that didn't have to be the superhero anymore. Being a superhero is exhausting. Yeah. There's a interview with, um, Steve jobs from in the nineties where someone said, no, it was in the eighties. He was still at Apple and he was worth like $200 million and said, what do you, what does it feel like to have, to be so young and to be so wealthy? And he was like, what do you mean? wealthy? I, I view wealth as, as that's a point in your life or your career where you can take off for three months, go to Hawaii and, uh, and not do anything for those three months. That's wealth. And that is such a, uh, reorientation that's a an expert talking about that is exactly what we're talking about but an expert talking about the uh, the difference between the narrative of wealth and the reality of the responsibility of of running a company for uh 70 80 hours a week and being imprisoned well, by it well and i think and and early on when you're growing up it's it's natural to want to chase wealth and kind of be your own person and build and um, and you're envious of people. Like a lot of it is driven by like this, I want to be this person or I would need to have this much money. And Charlie Munger always says the worst sin is envy because it's the only sin that you can actually have no fun at. Like when you compare yourself to someone else, it's, it's virtually always destructive. Mm. And I think as you just get older and you have kids and, and you just see enough times, you're like, the more I try and be someone else or compare myself to someone else, I'm just like miserable. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. And I fight that battle every day. There's days I want to be Jeff Bezos and there's days I want to sit on my ass and do nothing. Those, uh, But trying to like keep yourself in check is like, what is driving this right now? And some of the worst times we have is just when we're just envious of other people and like being on Twitter and, you know, the amount of polarization there is with Instagram and everything that hits us all day. It's virtually impossible to not be comparing yourself to someone else all the time. And the goal is to at least recognize it. I don't think we can escape it. But if you recognize, yeah, I'm feeling pretty shitty right now, but it's really because I'm just like thinking about James and all of his success and why I'm not as successful as James. And he's, you know, got this magic. That's just envy. And it doesn't solve anything. It's like zero. Po there's nothing that it solves. Now, one thing I would add. People would say, yeah, but isn't that what motivates you? And I don't really know how to answer. Yeah, that creates motivation. But if it, if it's the only reason why I want to do something great is to be like James and I will always be in a tough spot. It's it's okay to want to be inspired by someone and want to, you know, take their best qualities. But a lot of miserable people, it's because of envy. And that's why like like nobody wants to if, – if you've got a billion and your friend has five, you want five. Mm -hmm. uh, the five billion guys want ten. The it's it never really ends, and all it really is is people just comparing themselves to other people. Yeah, well, you do, which I do all the time, by the way, and I struggle with it, and I think we all do. But I at least have I'm trying to build a framework for understanding when I'm doing that. Right. Well, there's a um, yeah, there's the power in that uh, immense power in the observation that it's happening, and you do make adjustments in your life to where I think you haven't been on Instagram in like two years or something since 26, since the first Trump election. So whenever that was 2015 or 16. Yeah. So you, uh, you do, I mean, if 
comparison is the thief of joy, as the adage goes, then that's the joy siphon is getting on social media where it is, um, it is just so wired for comparison, or at least if you are wired for comparison, you will use the tool in that way. And it is, uh, I'm wired the, the same way. You mentioned that you're, or what were you going to say? As I, well, I said the irony of it is, and I, I'm looking back on this, I think most people post their happiest times when they're actually sad. It's a, it's a personal mm-hmm. thing. And I would do it all the time. I'd be like, I'm having the shittiest day. And I would go find some photo to post that would make it look like Chris is on fire today. He's having a great day. Mm-hmm. Even internally, I was always having this struggle of like, not that I was always upset in posting, but there would be times where it's like Michael and I were maybe having a hissy fit one day and we would still post a picture of like us out having a great time. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, somebody's going to look at this and think, why am I not having a great time? When re- they, reality, they probably should be thinking like, Chris is having a tough day too and that's okay. But I would never post that. Nobody would ever post their downside. Mm-hmm. And after a while, it's like, yeah, the highlight reels get boring because you actually – if you know enough people, you know what's going on behind the scenes and it doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. When you said you were 34 earlier in the conversation, you said 34 and you still feel behind. Uh, tell me a little more about that and and how that maps to what you're saying right now where you're wired for a comparison. And and I am as well. I mean, it's it. I think it's um, that insecurity is, is uh, the larger the insecurity, the bigger in many ways the... Uh, the egoistic ambition with career, but what do you mean by you're 34 and you, you always, you feel like you're always behind? Uh, I've had this feeling my whole life. I just, I think it's, it's, it's how we're wired. I think, again, you see a lot of people that end up in a, in a position uh, of owning a business or entrepreneur is there's this innate sense that they wake up every morning and they just have to go, 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 go and do something. And if you ask them why, I often can't tell you, but like I've never been good at meditating. I can't like sit still for a ton of time and just like let it all out. Uh, If you were to put me in a room for two hours without a phone where I just had to like sit and think, I'd probably, that would be tough for me. That's just who I am. And I have the, I, so when I say I feel behind, it's like, I don't know what I feel behind on necessarily all the time but I just always feel like I need to take another step. Um, And I can't explain it. And every personality test that I've ever taken would say that. And it's not just me. There's lots of people in the world that way. There's people that are built to, you know, take it day by day. And there's people that feel like they need to be living 10 years in the future. And if things aren't how they see them 10 years from now, every day that goes by that that vision isn't a reality. It's like, we got to go, we got to go. Um, and then there's people on earth that want to follow someone like that. Elon Musk wants to get to Mars. There's a lot of other people that want to get to Mars, but they want to make sure that like, they want to follow Elon to get there. Um, yeah, I, that's a, I don't know if I'm rambling. I just, I have always just woken up and felt like I had somewhere to go and I needed to do it. And, uh, sometimes it makes me a good parent. And sometimes it even makes me like if, if I'm out in the backyard playing with the kids where they're still young and playing with toys and something that's not, I'm interested in being with them and loving them, but I'll get that tension of like, shit, I got to go do something. Um, 
I'm trying to learn how to stay more present and it's not my nature. It's so hard for me to stay in the moment. Um, and I can't explain why. Do you think that's something you, you might master over time or do you think that is just a, just the, the idle engine and you're going to be 88 and it's still going to be there? Yeah, I don't look at it as a bad thing. And so that's the other part. I think you can get real wrapped up in like, I think being present is a good thing, but I think there's a lot of strengths for me not being always present. Um, and every time I try and get in the present, I don't know, I maybe I will master it, but I, I won't look at it as a failure if I don't. Let's just put it that way. Tell me about the, uh, you mentioned your partner, Jason, <clears throat> you know, six times in the conversation. And I remember in our friendship and our relationship, I remember you once saying, um, and I think you had had two or three stutter starts with partners. And I remember you telling me like, I just have to do it myself. I'm not built for a partnership. This is several years ago, but now I hear you talk about, and not just in this conversation, almost every conversation, um, this partner and Jason comes up seven times. I met him very briefly, but I feel yeah. like I know him because he comes up seven times, you know, every, once every 10 minutes it, when we're talking about business for all of the right reasons. But can you walk me through the stutter starts that moment in time? And maybe it's just an offhand comment of saying, dude, I'm, I'm not built for partnerships. So I just have, I've got to do this myself or to work solo to now the present day where you have such a strong partnership that you're like, shit, this guy is better at me at this job than I am. So a few things I think about there. So one, if you're starting something for the first time and you've never had a partner, I don't think you fully understand how intense a partnership is. So it's easy to want to like 50-50 with someone when there's no business and it's very easy to sign it. Yeah, we'll be 50-50. Um, the second thing is we tend to want to work with people that are like us. Uh, which is sometimes good, but in a partnership, you need complementary skill sets. Like when you were partners with Caleb, y'all were complete opposites uh, in a good way. But when you're recruiting, it's really easy to want to go find someone that's just like you. Those are the people that you kind of like see yourself in them. Um, and a good partnership doesn't work out well when both people's strengths are the same strengths and their weaknesses are the same weaknesses. And so I think a few of my first partnerships that didn't work were uh, one, the first one probably didn't work because it was the, hey, yeah, let's be partners. We'll split it 50-50 and you're kind of good at that and I'm kind of good at this and we both don't have a track record and that'll work. And then after like a year, you're like, you kind of figure it out. I think the second couple were, it felt right, but we were really just going to start eating each other up because we were both the same kind of strengths. Um, and so at that time, when I probably told you that I had been through a couple and by the way, all of those people are still really good friends of mine. They did not end poorly. They just weren't going to work. If I said there's something that I could have done better in those is again, I don't, I move at one speed a lot of the time and that's very quick pace. And if you're not going to keep up, especially as a partner, it, it probably wouldn't have worked. So when Jason and I partnered, he we didn't start as partners. He was paid like a partner, but we worked together for two years before deciding to become partners. And that was really important. I got We got to get through the ups and the downs. We kind of treated each other like partners. But at the end of the day, if he wanted to walk 
there we weren't going to have to like blow up the company to do it or if i wanted to walk but we treated each other and we talked like partners and made decisions but he had a totally different skill set than i had so it was very rare that we were like getting in the same lane i think bad partnerships can also spawn when you're trying to compete with your partner and jay we never tried to compete with each other uh he totally got who i was and understood that he's also 10 years older than me he's worked at a big company and run bigger teams so he had just seen a lot more and at the end of the day he put his heart and soul into the company like it was his from day one like never a day did jason show up that it that he didn't leave it all on the field and that is so rare and i tell people all the time i don't know there's no formula for it but i tell people all the time find a jason it's like an amazing thing dude and, i know i know um, like four jasons yeah, Jason you do. Wood, fine, fine. Jason Friedman. <laughs> what is when you say you paid him like a partner? Had, had it, but not uh, given the the title. Is that potentially part of the formula? Where did you tell him, hey, in two years, what success looks like is I want you to become a partner. We're going to pay you, but for that, but <clears throat> but it won't be explicit until you know we really make sure this works. Uh, he, he was paid like a partner because he probably wouldn't have come on board if he wasn't. He was at that point in his career where he was either going to go start his own thing or if he was going to come work with me, like that's where he was in his career and that's where I was. Um, and again, we always have operated like it's, a. even though on paper I have more ownership, never once have I had to use that card. Like we've always operated in great faith. And I think a bad partnership is when if I have 51 and you have 49, I'm constantly reminding you of that. Like, that's no partnership. Mm-hmm. That, it's not. On paper it is, and maybe financially it is. But a true partnership is where you trust each other. Um, I don't think I'm any smarter than him, and he doesn't think he's any smarter than me. And But that's not the goal. And even though I guess if I ever wanted to to change a decision that he made, I could do it. I would never let him know that. And the reason why I would change it wouldn't be me pulling out some like yellow card being like, hey, remember how much I own of this? Like Mm -hmm. you see that happen a lot. And I think the word partner, when I say partner is like, it's like a marriage in a lot of ways. When you think of like a law firm, like a junior person makes junior partner. Right. And there's lots of partners like that's different. There are people at Fort that have equity, and um, they're on. In theory, if you have equity, you're a partner. You are a partner in a deal or whatever. But when I'm talking about Jason, I I don't mean to sound uh, weird about it, but it's like a marriage. He is, uh, he counterbalances me. I counterbalance him. It's a it's a different level of partnership, I guess I could say. Um, it's kind of like a co-founder type of thing. Maybe there's only so many founders, but there's lots of partners eventually. Well, and talk about. Uh you know, the the hire someone, if you think it's expensive to hire someone uh, expensive, try hiring hiring someone cheap, but also it ended up being so cheap that I just know in the years of our conversations about it, he's brought so much to the table for, for Fort and for the business um, that I imagine it's, it's to the point where it's like your spouse, you're going to bed at night being like, man, how did I get so lucky? Yeah. And, and, And to be clear, anybody listening and if Jason was here, he'd laugh. Look, there's been time what when you know it's good is there's been times where we've never fought, we've never um yelled at each other, we've never 
we have disagreed with each other. Uh, we've had these moments of time where it's been really stressful and, you know, especially during COVID and it's not like everything's been roses all the time, but we have crossed like this threshold of the only thing that could disrupt what we have now is like just true lying or, or unethic or just, but that would not be either his or my character. Like we have crossed all the thresholds of um, there's just such deep trust that even if I don't agree with him, and that's part of being a chairman now is like, he's got to make the decision. Like if I am constantly auto-correcting his decisions and he's really not the CEO, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how to describe it, but that's a deep level of trust. And that doesn't happen from working together with someone for like a month or two or a year. Like that takes lots of time. You have to go through shitty times, how you come out of them, you get stronger. Um, yeah. Seven years in, I again go find a Jason. I don't know how to say it. It's it's a cool thing. Well, the antithesis of that is is uh, it sounds like go find someone that is just like you, and do it out of fear. Um, antithesis being the opposite of that advice of go find your Jason is find someone that is um, just like you out of fear and security. It's almost, I, I think about this quite a bit. The Y Combinator has famous um, just position that the, the biggest, the biggest uh, reason for start failure uh, the most common reason is break is founder breakups. And, and yet they also have the position that you have to, you basically have to have a co-founder um, to get into Y Combinator. It's very rare to get in as a solo founder because they also realize the other side of that, that story is that, it's co-founders that end up building the largest companies. And that ends up, that is um, statistically the truth that co-founder, it's just so friggin' hard to do, to build these things that you really do need multiple. I mean, imagine just being a solo parent with five kids. You think you're doing yourself maybe a, a service in, in control to just be that one founder with five children, uh, that one, but no one would be the parent, the solo parent with five, five kids on purpose, but early on in our careers, and I made this mistake, um, before I found someone like Kayla at my last company in that it was, it's almost like you find, I feel like founders look for co-founders like they look for friends. But in many ways we, we find our friends out of, uh, really surface level and pretty insecure reasons, shared interests, shared interests. Is another way that's a euphemism for like validate the things that I'm interested in, um, validate the things that I get excited about because these other people, they drain my energy when they're excited about things that I'm not excited about. So let's get excited about whether it's, you know, whatever Dallas Cowboys and, and, or college football, it's getting excited about, um, the, uh, the company idea that we have and getting excited about in the same ways. And it's totally out of just uh, for me, when I've done it poorly, picked a co-founder poorly, it's been from, I'm going to bring on someone with the exact same strengths and weakness profile as me um, because I love to vibe with that person. Because at the end of the day, we don't have a company, we don't have business, we don't have a product. All we have is the discomfort of starting something that I need the antidote for, which is someone to vibe with that can get excited about the same things. Yeah. Rather than like, oh no, I actually not looking for someone to vibe with. Um, although that's, that is you know part of the equation, but it's more like I need to 
work on the exterior of the car and they need to work on the interior. And I don't know shit about the interior. I don't need someone that is thinking through whatever the same facets of the exterior with me um, and getting excited about those facets. I need someone that's actually fascinated by the part that I know nothing about. And yeah, I think early in a career, it's actually disjointed. That's actually hard to vibe with that person. It's when I brought, I brought on a GM for magic mind and, uh, and it was after five months of that person being an advisor for us. Um, and he was a COO of his own company and bringing him in as GM with the goal of him being uh, president within six months, if it works out, um, and the potential goal, and this is just the below the line version. I, with the potential goal of him becoming CEO in, in two years, if, if that works out as well, that five months into him advising, it, it wasn't like, man, we are best friends. It was like, shit, this guy is, brings a really strong analytical mind. And actually the communication styles, we're not, we don't communicate the same way. Um, and for each tiny ounce of uh, annoyance that we don't communicate in the same way, it's made up for 10 times over with just that experience of like, I'm so glad he thinks through these things differently. Yep. It's, I mean, yeah, you, you just nailed it. I mean, the, the irony of it is uh, business, a lot of business is not sexy. It's fun to want to go build a payment system, but building the actual payment system is pretty, I'm not saying it's boring, but it's, nobody's getting in the magazine because they're out coding about the payment that they made. But James is in the magazine because he had this great idea to do payments and blah, blah, blah. Well, if you have two Jameses that are like screaming to the world, this is what we're going to go do. And then nobody in at home base that's actually making it happen. It doesn't work. And um, a mature business has lots of accountants and it has HR and it has IT and it has all these things that have like nothing to do with making a payment system. I don't want to deal with all that. But it, you got to have a counterpart that's like, yeah, this is my baby. This is what I want to work on. And if both people just want to run out of the office every day and go make sales and, you know, be the rainmaker, it do, it's fun for like a little bit. And then you're like, hey, dude, I need you back at the office, like hiring an accountant and getting our IT set up and whatever that is. And they're like, I don't want to do that. I want to be out selling. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's like... Um it's like a pro basketball player bringing on their biggest fan to be the co-founder or the, to be, you know, the uh, yeah. second star on the team versus someone that has a very different skill set that complements the skill set. Um, I think that's, I, I know with my first two startups, I totally brought on the two biggest fans of the idea because <laughs> it was so scary to start something that I just, I sought that validation more so than I sought uh, the patient execution. So if, if, if we were to, to, to distill this conversation, like if somebody's saying about bringing on a founder is really get to know what they're capable of doing. And before you make a decision on a partner is like, are they bringing something to the table that you absolutely have to have and that you can't produce on your own? And a lot of people, especially in real estate, it's like, oh, he's my partner because he can get us like a bank loan. Okay, that makes sense for like the first deal or two. But as soon as you can get a bank loan without that person and they don't have any other, it's like it's over. 
So really understand what they're capable of doing. Make sure they love being able to do it. And then just say, is this something I absolutely must have? And without it, the business can't move. Or is this something I could just hire out? Like you, like in, in, in accounting, you wouldn't make an accountant a, a co-founder because you could hire an accountant. A good partner should bring some insight or strategy or experience or if it's in tech, it's like coding uh, a non-technical founder versus a technical founder. But they have to be able to do something that like you absolutely don't feel like you can get or hire. They're just bringing something to the table that is going to complete it. And that is very often going to look like something totally opposite than what your strengths are, if you're thinking about it the right way. And the third point from earlier in the conversation of, uh, is this someone that you would want to work for? Yeah, that's it. Okay, that's well, that's probably at the highest level. Yes. The uh, well, with the remaining time, I want to ask you, Chris, what are three stories that help? Two questions uh, remaining. What are three stories that have helped shape who you've become? So two have to do with my dad. I wrote them down. I'm I'm looking at them. One is a really unique um, deal, and I think it's probably why I'm a go go go. Uh, when my dad was 37 years old. Uh, he had been a lawyer for 13 years, had gone um, to Harvard undergrad, Virginia law, became a attorney. And at 37, he came home to my mom and he said, I'm tired of being an attorney. I want to be a doctor and uh, went back to UTEP, University of Texas, El Paso, and got his pre-med biology degree with a bunch of undergrad students. And we moved to Lubbock the next year and he started medical school at 38 years old. Um, he was like 14 years older than the average person in his class. And, uh, I don't want to paint a picture that we lived in, uh, poverty, but we, we, as a med student, you don't make any money, uh, you don't make any money. And then four years after med school, you're a resident, you're making like minimum wage basically. And so for eight years, we had lived this really comfortable life and things were, were tight, uh, really tight, um, our living experience changed when we moved away from El Paso to Lubbock. And I think that gave me a lot of the drive. Um, I just saw things early on that for me was like, I saw my dad work his ass off. I saw him work really tirelessly, but um, I don't know, for some reason it put the fear of God in me that I needed to control my own destiny. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be controlled by, um, I just wanted to give myself more options. I don't know how to describe it, but when you watch someone go through that and he was passionate and loved it, but it was, it was tough on our family. Um, so that's one. The second is on my dad. My dad passed away. It's actually, uh, uh, nine years today Oh wow! as uh, the nine year anniversary. Um, my dad passed away in a tragic bicycle accident. Um, he was in a bicycle accident and spent almost 30 days in the ICU that was when I was 20, I guess I was 25 years old. I grew up really, really quick. I'll just leave it there. It was uh, traumatic. Um, my dad was like Superman to me. Uh, and I had a mom and a sister that were, uh, you know, that I needed to take care of. And uh, my sister was had just gotten out of college and my mom was, uh, you know, turned upside down and I was running a business and I had just met who is now my wife. And that was just a crazy experience that I'll never forget. Um, so that's probably the second thing that changed who I am. I matured really quickly and I've probably seen a lot of things and 
felt a lot of things that people don't often feel till later. And I think the being in the ICU for 30 days, hoping he would live, it does something to you that uh, you just can't explain until you've been through something like that. Um, and we talked about one of them and, and it's the same parallel to you. I met this guy, Adam Blake, my freshman year of college that taught me how to buy houses and it changed my entire life. James, I met you through Clark, took a random trip down to South Africa uh, on a whim again, uh, at, at just like starting things. I remember telling you, Hey, we should start a venture fund. And you were like, okay, but I'm busy. I'm running a company. I was like, okay, I'll just do everything and blah, 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 blah. And you focus on finding deals, but we didn't have any magic plan to start what we started. We just kind of like did it. And looking back is like, if you told people how it started, they'd laugh at you, but we just did it. And so that changed my life meeting Adam in the same vein, meeting you and what that's led to not only as a friendship, but in venture. Um, I met some people early on that uh, we became good friends. They taught me something. I taught them something and forever changed my life. Uh, venture is a huge part of my life. We didn't talk about it today that much, uh, but that's really because of you. You starting Tilt, you going out to San Francisco, you being part of Y Combinator. I was a lucky beneficiary to that. And I've told you many times I'm grateful for that. Um, not that I don't want that to come off as, uh, uh, you know, I'm glad I met you cause you're in venture. It, it's more just because you were in my life and because I took an opportunity, uh, that changed my life. There's not a whole lot of relationships where something's so big in your life happens from a friendship that somebody helped you out. Um, and I hope I've done that for somebody else. I hope I've done that for you and, and to Adam. So those are three stories. Well, I remember going through that experience at, at uh, not even arm's length, but a thousand miles away uh, with with your dad dying um, and uh, seeing you through that chaos. I mean, any fool can find peace in peace. And uh, you were able to find peace in that chaos. I think it's um, it was a it was a influential experience for all of your friends and loved ones to see you go through that, uh, with so much peace, um, and trust and, and God, we didn't talk about, um, your faith in this conversation, but I know that that's at the bedrock of everything that we're saying of whether it comes out in these tiny little, but absolutely critical, meaningful spikes in a conversation of the fact that you said, you know, integrity or, um, uh, ethical issues would never be a part of your, you know, the issues with you and Jason, or whether you you talking about growing up a lot with uh, your dad going, dying in a tragic accident, or you talking about um, feeling like you were uh, at 17, confident enough to start uh, buying homes. Um, there's a foundation there within your faith that I imagine is, is that below the line version of, of the story that you think about. And then within that, that friends influencing friends, um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, it, this explicitly, but for listeners, Chris, I told Chris this idea that I was going to go do, and I was going to do it regardless. But, um, in my head, I was like, I'm going to need to raise capital to do this over sandwiches in Dallas, um, <laughs> a payments company and, uh, and described it as kind of a social, um, PayPal, uh, social group version of, of Venmo and, and you wrote a large check. You had done decently well as a, as a founder by that point, because I think we were 24. 
And, but you wrote a, a large check and it was the first check into the business. And, um, my dad had also supported me. So I guess first check outside of a obligatory, uh, potential, you know, <laughs> partial help from my dad and, uh, and mom and, uh, which not to under, uh, sell how critical supportive parents are. Holy shit. Is that oh, yeah. the below the line version of so many stories, but, uh, you don't expect as much from a friend that supports you that much. I remember walking to the the car and you're like, dude, I want to put a hundred thousand dollars into this idea. <laughs> We're sitting now as the sun was beating down on us. It was in the summer 2010 ish. And, uh, and we're outside of, uh, your Tahoe and, and you just said that, you know, thing that you would just never expect a, a friend to say. And, and I'm like sitting there with like, I think I had my laptop um, and I was like, just like, okay, how do I get out of this conversation quickly? So he doesn't go back on this. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just like, okay, cool, man. Cool. Um, well, I'll, I'll follow up uh, a great lunch. And uh, it's, it's exciting. And I just was like, get the fuck out of there. Don't ruin this uh, moment because I need that. I actually really need that money. <laughs> uh, and I don't think back this then, is a the wise. terms were like, you raise a huge seed round of like 200 grand at like a 2 million valuation. 500. Yeah. And 2 million. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's so funny. It was just so, uh, I was like, get out of there. I need this capital. I don't, and I don't think that I actually don't think this is prudent (laughs) of my friend, but, um, he Uh wants to support me and I actually really need uh, the capital. So I, but that then gave me the confidence then to go down to Austin and get amazing angels. Like these tiny, tiny little footholds, um, and it could have been literally a $10,000 check. It was so much more about my friend is writing a check. We don't have, I, I think you had a couple of pennies to rub together, but none of us uh, did and uh, our, our other friends. And so that was so, I mean, the, the journey up Everest starts with a single foothold, that first foothold, that first step. And that was like this, uh, that was the catalyst for, angel investors in Austin that then send me into that then get help get me into Y Combinator, help find my co-founder, Caleb, um, get me into, you know, quote unquote venture. But, uh, but the, um, get me into the, like the epicenter of the startup ecosystem. And it started with a friend talk about the value of friendship, validating an idea you have not great for, um, co-founders, but phenomenally, uh, powerful as, as a friend writing a check. And, uh, and in investing in, in your idea on that last story. Yeah. You have influenced me, um, more so than, than, uh, any, uh, any of our friends and any of our friends listening to this, which we have a, a very large group of close friends that do listen to this podcast and both of our podcasts. Well, uh, now they know that the bar is raised to, uh, <laughs> to really support one another. Um, but, uh, so that's, uh, thank you for, for sharing those three stories you're welcome. The last question for you, Chris, is uh, what's something you think a lot about? Maybe we touched on in the conversation, but something that you think a lot about, but you rarely get a chance to talk about professionally, personally, just something that takes up a lot of mind share within your head, headspace, but you rarely ever get a chance to talk about it. I wrote down one thing and it's kind of interesting. So what makes YPO so amazing is that it's eight people and you sign this confidentiality agreement, but it's the most transparent 
thing I've ever been a part of. And what I mean by that is there's eight guys I meet with for four hours every, um, and I guess the, the, the theme more is like, you don't know as much about your friends as you think, you know, so these are guys that, you know, they they become great friends of mine, but I see them once a month. We don't necessarily hang out outside of YPO, but I have told them things that literally maybe my wife know, and that's really it. Um, because it's supposed to be a place as a business owner where you can go like, let it all out, receive good feedback. And so maybe something I think about a lot because I've had that experience. And I also see people all the time and like read between the lines is like, they're begging to tell somebody something, but they don't know where to tell it. They don't trust. So I keep it in. One of the best experiences I have every month is four hours of a hundred percent confidentiality. And I've been part of it for six years. I've, again, I've shared things that like, I mean, as even as I'm talking to you, like you don't even know about. And, but if I sat here, I was like, oh, James and I have been friends for 14 years. People just assume like they must know everything about each other. But there's not very much intentional time in friendships where you're like, lay it all on the line. Like I've done something really bad or, you know, I'm struggling with this or even good stuff. Um, so maybe the thing I think about a lot that uh, I think should become more it, it, and, and because I have that, it's unbelievably freeing is I, I hope that people can find a place outside of just their spouse where they can uh, chat through things and and uh, deliver information to people um, because a lot of the best things that have happened to me in my life have been because I'm able to speak to the core of like an issue that, again, even if I go see some of my best friends who are my best friends, like I'm just not going to show up and like drop a bunch of bombs and not to say I don't trust my friends to not say anything, but like there are things that if they were to say one thing to somebody else and the cat's out of the bag, that wouldn't be good. I'm unbelievably blessed to have a group to have that transparency. And I hope that other people are able to find that in their lives. It's why YPO is now 60,000 people across the country, but it all reverts back to one thing, this opportunity to be unbelievably transparent with people and receive and give back uh, feedback. And it's YPO stands for, is it young president's organization, young professionals mm -hmm. organization? And yep. uh, it it sounds a little bit like AA for just it's a hundred percent like that. You don't need an addiction, even though we all have them. Um, yep. But you get to have that confidentiality and and the setting of you have to be incredibly transparent with what's going on and with friends. I think part of the time it's out of love. You just don't want to bog down your friends with with shit and. And then you end up carrying, it's the same reason CEOs find themselves in such such isolating territory as well as like, well, I don't want to burden the team with this. And yet everyone benefits, can benefit yeah. from, from sharing the load. Yeah. That's interesting, especially on the, just the observation of friends don't, um, you're saying here's an area where you can do it, but also seems like you're also uh, making the observation that, um, friendships don't, don't often create space for that. Yeah. I mean, because you meet up for a beer, you chat for an hour or two. The, the, the purpose isn't to go and like divulge, like the setting isn't, the plate isn't there. Not to say I don't go to a lot of my friends and tell them stuff and I, they help me out and I'm, I have such a supportive system, but it's this, it's this layer of transparency and confidentiality that I've never experienced before. 
And that is kind of the mission of it is because people, not just in situations like mine, people, no matter where they are in their life, have a lot going on in their life and they don't often have a place to like really talk about it. Um, and it's helped me tremendously having a, being able to be transparent, knowing that full confidentiality is intact. Yeah. We, um, we just had Seth Godin on the podcast and he was talking about the power of uh, mastermind groups, even if you just create one yourself where you're meeting with uh, other people in your field to show your work, to get feedback. And it really uh, helps you get into the process or the machine that builds the machines. It really helps you get into that foundation. I mean, I imagine that's what a lot of the conversation is, is not about the strategy and tactics of your business, but it is no. the foundational um, you know, the source of, of all of the energy going into all of your endeavors and it's fixing that source obviously improves all the others, but it's, um, so rare to have, uh, to have a base that gets to just invest, invest, invest in that, uh, you know, whatever the source of the river that's powering yeah. all of these endeavors. Um, man, we are such good friends and yet I, yeah, I best friends and I, I think I would admit that we don't even have that intentional space. And again, it's, I don't think it's just out of fear. We tell each other whatever is happening, but it's out of, I think it's also out of just a misguided love or appreciation of the other. If we're going to get beers for an hour, I'm not going to tell Chris this cash flow issue that we're dealing with that now we have to, you know, get four loans out or whatever we've got to go uh, chop up or this personnel issue that is like a lawsuit waiting to happen between this coworker and this coworker because of something that's just like tearing at the fabric of a founder's mind, but there isn't the, that intentional space. Four hours, that seems to be a very important part of the equation. It's a very structured meeting and you show up, the mindset is show up ready to share. And you're only if you go in and surface level issues is like you're not it's 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 no better of a group than just going and being surface level with somebody else like it's an intentional group to go like i really fucked up or i just did this thing and i can't believe i did it or you know having to make decisions about people in the business or something like that it's just there's just not a lot of places that people have uh, not only the transparency, but the confidentiality, the trust right. that like this is going to stay right here. Right. We call it like level one, which is even as confidential as, hey, I'm going to say it and we're going to talk about it. But then even though, you know, if I never bring it up again, don't bring it up to me. Mm -hmm. Keep it, hold it, do what you want with it. But we're not going to talk about it unless I choose to talk about it again. Level mm -hmm. two would be like, hey, I told you you're more than welcome to bring it up. There's never a case where they can go tell somebody outside of the group, but even the levels of confidentiality of like, I don't want to hear about it again. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. And it's, I am like so grateful for that four hours every month. Yeah. I have that, a bit of that with my, it, uh, actually a lot of that with my executive coach, but it's, uh, it's, there's so many relationships, investors, coworkers, friends, where incentives are tied for some goal alter your yeah. goal that you you can't tell you don't feel often don't feel like you could tell an investor xyz because you're like well i need them in six months to trust that i can solve any issue and so i can't bring up this major issue and and uh 
it's, um, yeah, I imagine within your group, you don't lean on them for, you're not leaning on them for your next deal. So you don't care no. uh, about that potential lost opportunity. There is no thought of lost opportunity by being so transparent. Um, well, speaking of transparency, uh, and so yeah, executive coach, or it sounds like YPO, or even people creating a group somehow of their own, a mastermind group can be a phenomenal way to give that relief valve because uh, some word of caution would be do not make for founders. It would be to not make your spouse or significant other that person because that is a fucking drain and it might yep. be a relief valve for a little bit, but then it is a drain two years in where your spouse is like, I get all of this negative anxiety that you, you know, just pour into me and I don't know how, what to do with it. Uh, yep. And they'll, they'll rarely ever articulate it uh, that way, but it, it's, they do not want to be the, the, just the, they don't want to be the one siphoning off all of the negative energy when you come home from work. Um, all right. Well, speaking of transparency, thank you so much for the generosity and transparency in this conversation, Chris, as, as always, where can people find more about you online? It was a pleasure, man. I always love this. This is, it's cool that it's been going on for a couple of years now. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris, or you can check me out on my podcast, which is called the Fort podcast with Chris powers. Uh, would love for you to give it a listen again, dude. Thanks a lot. This is a lot of fun. Well, thank you, buddy. And, uh, you inspired me to start the podcast. So it really started with you and, uh, and yeah, I can't wait to check out the lumber one Oh one, uh, timber industry uh, episode that that you just dropped i uh, love the concepts behind your 101 episodes of diving into like the timber industry um yeah so i can't wait to dive in all right buddy until next time thank you buddy